Hello and welcome to the ET PhD team podcast, the podcast here to help you with your relationship with food and body by giving you evidence-based techniques to support yourself with a sprinkling of feminism, a dash of dismantling diet culture and a side of vulnerability as we share our own messy lives with you. I'm Emilia, a registered nutritionist and PhD with the sole purpose of making your life happier and healthier. If you love it, please do go wild and share it. And if you're ready for support with our coaching, details are in the show notes. Hello and welcome to episode number 208 of the ETPHD team podcast with just, no not just, with myself. One day I will get that right. Today is not that day as I record this podcast under a blanket in my apartment in Lisbon. I'm... So you're so welcome for the dedication to the cause. I did try and get into my wardrobe and crawl into a little ball. Um, Unfortunately, my body is just not quite small enough to fit into a wardrobe for a full half an hour podcast. Um, So alas, I'm back on the floor under a blanket. I know, I'm extremely professional. Um, Long may it continue. Today's episode, we're going to be talking about periodizing nutrition around the menstrual cycle. Because there's a lot of misconceptions with this, I get asked about this a lot. It's one of my favourite topics to talk about on EIQ Nutrition. So if you do buzz off this stuff, I highly recommend that you look at the EIQ Nutrition content and especially if you're a coach. I mean, realistically, if you're a coach, you should be doing this anyway because I know myself and Emma, we would never work with any coaches who have not done EIQ um, in terms of bringing them onto our personal teams. Anyway, I digress. Let's talk about periodizing your nutrition. Bit of a background. Hopefully, most of you are aware, even if either you're somebody who menstruates or you work with people who menstruate, hopefully you're aware of the basics of a menstrual cycle, i.e. the menstrual cycle duration is from the first day of your bleed until the last day before your bleed. The average cycle length is 28 days, but realistically, most people's cycles vary around that mark. Some people's are slightly longer, some are slightly shorter. In the middle of that 28-day cycle, we roughly, on day 14-ish, have ovulation in an ovulatory cycle. And the 14 days, or the days before ovulation, are what we call the follicular phase and the days after are what we call the luteal phase. During the follicular phase, hopefully you've got a kind of image in your head now, you might want to shut your eyes, imagine um, the phases of the menstrual cycle, gosh. Um, In the follicular phase, what happens is at the very start when when we have our bleed, our menses, we have low estrogen and low progesterone. As we move towards ovulation, estrogen begins to rise. So it Estrogen really begins to rise from the first day of our period um, and peaks before ovulation, so in the slightly later follicular phase. And progesterone stays low throughout this time. After ovulation, estrogen drops and progesterone increases and peaks um, just before we bleed. At that time, when we have high progesterone, that's often where we see a rise in temperature. So if you're somebody who tracks your cycle using uh, basal temperature, then that fluctuation in temperature that you see after ovulation where temperature increases is is in relation to that peak in progesterone. So we have the follicular phase where um, progesterone is low and estrogen is relatively high. Then we have the luteal phase 
where estrogen drops and progesterone is high. In a nutshell, there is slightly more to it than that, but for the premise of a podcast where you're trying to probably imagine this as you're out for a walk, you've probably not got your notes at hand, and that's where we're going with it. (coughs) Excuse me. Okay, so when it comes then to periodizing your nutrition, what do we actually have to consider? If you look on social media, you will be told during this phase, you will feel like this and you will want to eat this. And during this phase, you will feel like that and you will want to eat that. Usually by an influencer who's not trained in many things. Um, And one of the reasons also I wanted to do this podcast is because actually there's a lot of misconceptions around this because we could talk for days and I do talk in more detail on EIQ Nutrition about the mechanisms behind some of the changes that we see across our menstrual cycle in terms of hunger, energy levels, mood, etc. But often people who talk about this stuff only focus on the mechanistic stuff. And when I say mechanistic, what I mean is uh, the impact, say, of potential impact of, say, progesterone on hunger or on estrogens on hunger. What people often do is reduce their uh, narratives to that stuff because it sounds really intellectual, right? And what's more empowering than telling women exactly what they should eat on certain days of their cycle? It makes them feel like often that they have control over their cycle. And what do we love more than to overly control our food, right? Lovely little disordered habits in there. But realistically, when we look at the research as a whole body on people in real life, that's not necessarily what we see. And that is a much unsexier, is that word? Not in my vocabulary. Um, Much unsexier narrative. However, it is important to put the truth out there because that is me, the truth giver. You're so welcome. Except to myself, (laughs) obviously. I like to lie to myself on a regular basis. Anyway, let's start. Hunger. What happens to hunger? Many of you, if you menstruate, will listen to this and think, well, I know what happens to me when I have PMS, for example. I could eat a scabby horse. Um, What is the reality of that? So, first of all, remember in the luteal phase, we have relatively high progesterone and relatively low estrogen. Progesterone does have an impact on increase in hunger. Okay, so it is potentially likely that we feel hungrier due to that rise in progesterone. But also, oestrogen has some really cool, cool roles as well. So oestrogen, there's th- like three different kind of key oestrogens, but I'm going to bracket them all together for the purpose of this podcast. Again, if you want to learn more about this, then um, there are uh, we go into a deeper dive in this in EIQ Nutrition. So oestrogens do, oestrogen does a number of things. One thing it does is it downregulates a hormone called ghrelin. Ghrelin, you may remember from other podcasts, is a hunger hormone and it increases our feelings of hunger. Ghrelin makes our tummy growl. You're so welcome. Um, So when we have high levels of ghrelin, we feel more hungry. Oestrogen down-regulates ghrelin, i.e. when we have less oestrogen, we have less down-regulation of ghrelin. So we're likely to feel slightly hungrier. Oestrogen also increases um, the potency of what we call cholecystokinin K, which is a hormone that increases feelings of fullness. So we love that. So oestrogen increases the feelings of fullness. 
So in the luteal phase, we've got low estrogen, so we're less likely to feel full and satiated. Estrogen, um, therefore, increases postprandial satiation. Um, it has also some impact on dopamine binding after a meal. So on a whole, estrogen works to reduce ghrelin, tummy grumbling, hunger, increase cholecystokinin K activity, so we get more fullness um, and lower hunger. So when we have low estrogen in the luteal phase, specifically towards the end of the luteal phase, this is kind of flipped on its head. So mechanistically, it makes sense that we might feel hungrier. We've got potentially slightly higher um, upregulation of ghrelin, slightly lower potency of cholecystokinin K, and slightly um, lower postprandial satiation um, and the things that go on with that. So mechanistically, it does make sense that we're pretty damn ravenous during PMS. However, something also to note is, okay, well, we might feel hungrier, but does that actually mean anything for our, like our calories? Just because we feel hungrier, does it mean that we require more food, right? I mean, we do require more food to stop us from being hangry little beasts but do we in terms of calories? So many of you listen to this podcast will support people with dieting or will be dieting yourself um, or tracking calories, for example. And so calorie content might be more applicable to you or calorie requirements rather than someone who is maybe not doing that. So it's important just to recognize where you're at. So a common misconception, I think, with calorie intake during PMS is everyone says, oh, you know, your BMR can increase, your basal metabolic rate can increase up to 300 calories. It's wild for the days before your period. Is this actually true? Well, let's talk about it. Early research in the late 80s and 90s suggested that BMR was slightly higher in the luteal phase than the follicular phase. And there was some research published in 86 that suggested a range of about 8 to 16% increase in BMR. So what that looks like depends on your BMR, obviously, but roughly that's gonna look like maybe 150 to 250 calories a day-ish that we might see this increase in BMR. What's interesting too from a lot of the research is that, and I'll talk about what a lot means in a minute, is that when people are not tracking or controlling their food, we tend to just see a natural increase in energy intake that aligns with this. And there was some research that that identified that actually the natural increase in calorie intake was about 160 calories a day. So that kind of aligned quite nicely. So when left to our own devices, it kind of looked like, okay, well, your BMR might increase, but you'll probably find that you naturally increase a little bit more of your calorie intake and it all balances out. However, there are huge inter-individual differences. And what I mean by that is there's such variety between people in terms of what happens to their BMR during that phase. And not only that, but what happens to their BMR um, month to month. It's not an individual specific thing. So in 2020, there was a meta-analysis. I know I've said this a lot of times, but meta-analysis is a really good piece of research because it takes lots of different pieces of research, puts them together and runs statistics on all of those. And so this meta-analysis took 26 studies in total, involving a total of 318 women, which is not really a lot. 
So if you think of like large scale epidemiological studies, we'll have thousands and thousands of people in those. Um, and one thing you'll hear a lot of when people talk about this stuff is, well, people don't do studies on women. Well, they don't. And it is annoying. And it is patriarchy in some way, right? But it's also just because we are quite difficult to study. It doesn't mean we shouldn't be doing it, for sure. And research, not just science research, you know, psychology, so many probably all research areas are flawed in that predominantly they use white males so that is a struggle for us and when it comes to actually okay well we can't actually use males for looking at research in terms of menstruation okay well then we just won't run those studies and that can be quite uh, difficult when we're then coming to look at okay well what actually is the science behind what our bodies are doing all we know is what we feel so like I said, this 2020 meta-analysis took 26 days involving 318 women and they identified a, a small but significant effect that suggested an increase in, the specifically looking at resting metabolic rate, in the luteal phase. What was interesting, if you look at the numbers though, was that 47% of studies, which is only 14 studies, which is not a lot, reported an increase in resting metabolic rate in the luteal phase. And 53% reported no difference between phases. Um, what's important here is that they didn't give a natural amount because of, ultimately, they, they said the quality of evidence was just too low. There were lack of control groups in some studies, differences in terms of the way that things were measured. And the, met, the authors of the meta-analysis kind of ran through all of the limitations or many of the limitations of the studies that we have in this area. Huge risk of bias, um, very small sample sizes. A lot of the studies didn't report what we call potential confounders. What that means is kind of things that might impact resting metabolic rate outside of your period. And what was very, very interesting and what people will probably not talk about so much is that when they looked at the research retrospectively, they found that in more recent studies published since 2000, the effect of the phase of menstrual cycle was reduced. And actually, if we only looked at research from 2000, there was no statistically significant impact of the menstrual cycle phase on resting metabolic rate. So you're probably thinking, like, what does this actually mean for me? It means it's probably variable. It means we probably don't know the specific amount of extra calories that are quote unquote burned or expended during the luteal phase. We probably don't know the specific number of days that's happening for. Now, I would, I suggest it's prudent to maybe go with something like 10 to 15%-ish, but we don't know that for definite. So what I would say much more is important is understanding your own body and getting to know your own body. Some people will not notice any changes during the luteal phase and yet will hear things like this and they'll go, well, that must be happening to me, so I must need more calories. And that's not necessarily the case. So get to know your own body with this. Another common misconception is that we need to change the foods that we eat because of what we call um, changes in our um, metabolic efficiency and potentially changes in our carbohydrate utilization because 
what we see during the luteal phase two. It's a reduction in insulin sensitivity very slightly. So what that means is that carbohydrate use is decreased during the luteal phase and fat oxidation is increased because of this slight degree of insulin resistance. And there was one study that everyone loves to cite and that was published in 2016 called, um, by an author called Geiker. And what they identified right, was that they, when they periodized um, macros or nutrition to these metabolic changes, so for example, what they did was they would have different groups and one group would have slightly more carbohydrates during the luteal phase and some would have slightly more um, fat. They found that there was more fat loss when nutrition was periodized in this way. However, the study was really quite flawed. The protein was higher in the group that kind of periodized their nutrition according to this change in metabolic, um, um, what's the word I'm looking for here? When, when, when nutrition was periodized according to like changes in insulin sensitivity. Um, so protein was higher in that group. And actually the, the, the difference in carbohydrate intake was pretty low between groups. And there was a very large dropout rate. The study wasn't great and it's never been replicated. There's been no research that um, robustly suggests that we need to change the, the amount of carbohydrate or fat we eat throughout the menstrual cycle according to these shifts in insulin sensitivity. What's also important to note is that for most healthy people, even a slight degree of insulin resistance, even if that's present, if you're somebody who exercises and is physically active, then it's probably going to mitigate that, that shift anyway or very much attenuate it so it's not a thing. What's amazing about our bodies is that they're really pretty great at blood glucose control until we are struggling with, for example, impaired insulin sensitivity or diabetes. So you don't have to... There's no research to say that it's helpful to change the foods that you eat around your menstrual cycle. And someone cites that study... It was a really flawed study. So what does this mean practically? It means if you're hungrier during your luteal phase, you might want to honour that. You might want to eat more. Um, if you are somebody who is dieting and you find during your period or just before your period that you struggle to stick to your diet and you try and you try and you try and then you overeat and feel guilty, increase your calories to you know a couple of extra hundred or up to maintenance for that week. Because realistically, you're denying your hunger and potentially having this increase in BMR and potentially having this increase in hunger because of these shifts in hormones, you're denying your hunger and then overeating is not helping anyone. So just give yourself that grace and actually just increase it. That's if you're dieting. If you're somebody who's not dieting, allow yourself to eat more. Allow yourself to honour that hunger. Do all of the usual things during that week that helps satiety and be super mindful with them. Make sure you're eating enough protein. Make sure you're eating regularly. Ensure you're eating sufficient fibre. You might want to bulk up your meals even more that week because you know that you're slightly more hungry. If you want to have something, maybe you're craving something because cravings do shift and that can potentially be due to, there's a number of things. It could be due to the shift in the carbohydrate and fat, fat utilisation. It can be due to the fact that we're potentially more likely to be a tad emotional during that week. And when we feel emotional, we're more likely to turn to ultra-processed foods or foods high in carbohydrate and fat to try and um, have a bit of a neurotransmitter response and give us a, a reward from our food to try and improve our mood. So we're more likely, probably, during PMS to crave certain foods. 
if you are, allow yourself to have it, but maybe have it after lunch, at a time where you're not likely to overeat. Or after dinner, if you've got a great relationship with food, then just have it. Or if you're working in a relationship with food, you always have unconditional permission to eat these foods anyway. But now is a really good time to think about how mindful you're being with them because you might find that you're super hungry. Make sure you're well hydrated, make sure you're eating mindfully and regularly. I just want to note something about oral contraceptives too because a lot of questions will come in and say, well, does this happen if you're on the, on the pill or on contraceptive? And realistically, the, the research, shockingly, is even poorer in this realm than um, others. So when you look at basal metabolic rate and rest energy expenditure in women taking oral contraceptives, there was some research recently that that kind of it was a review that put all of these again these studies together and we only have seven studies and they're all observational or cross-sectional we've got no randomized control trials and those are the ones that kind of so like if we give someone an intervention what happens we don't have that so we only have seven studies which is nothing and compared to with naturally menstruating women who don't use oral contraceptives only five studies showed no difference in basal metabolic rate in women taking the pill um, and one study showed an increase and another showed a decrease compared to people who are naturally menstruating. So we don't really know what oral contraceptives are doing in terms of energy expenditure, but on the whole, it looks like they're not having an effect, which is great news. On top of that, weight gain is one of the most reported and most frequently cited reasons for not taking oral contraceptives but there's no research or there's no evidence that suggests that that actually is is true so there was a a review that looked at this that found again no evidence to support a significant effect of oral contraceptive use specifically the combined type on weight change because remember there are different types of contraceptive Um, there is one exception there was one study that observed that 36 months of the depot uh, contraceptive used um, when compared to people who didn't take that um, they found that there was a significant increase in weight relative to people who didn't take it. Now this is a progestin only and these types of contraceptives tend to be proposed to women that can't take estrogen for other reasons so it seems like, again, this is one study, but it's potential that the kind of singular progestin type um, contraceptives may, may have an impact. However, they're consistently, when we look at the reviews of all the research that we have consistently, there's no strong evidence of changes in weight and body composition with um, especially combined oral contraceptives. So we can't say that oral contraceptives are going to change at least our hunger levels relative to people who don't take the pill. What you might find if you take contraceptives, and obviously there's more than just oral contraceptives here, is that you might see slight deviations in terms of what happens to your hunger. So you might not get the, you won't get the fluctuations as extreme in terms of our endogenous hormones, i.e. the hormones that we produce. So you might not get that shift in appetite in the luteal phase you might see different fluctuations in your mood, for example, you might not get those fluctuations. Um, 
so you might have a lower drive to emotion eat for example or you might see some things and again everyone is so different sometimes people will say to me well i'm on the oral contraceptive and i still see some of these things is it placebo or is it is it actually happening and the answer is we don't know but that's why it's so important to not listen to people telling you this is exactly what's going to happen and more consider okay well what's happening for me in my body and not falling into the narrative of well, someone on social media said I'm going to be ravenous, therefore that's what's going to happen. Think about your own body. Think about what you need during that time. And if you're somebody who struggles with overeating in that PMS phase, then get reflective on that. Think about, okay, well, is it to do with my hunger? Am I trying to not, am I not honouring that shift in hunger that I may or may not be experiencing? Is that something I need to look at? Am I just doing it with chocolate and actually it's not helping me in terms of satiety? Do I need to add in an extra meal? Am I ignoring a lot of the emotions that come up and reaching for food to try and manage these? So things like anxiety, feelings of anxiety, feelings of um, stress, etc. may be impacted during the PMS phase. What also might happen during the PMS phase is that your sleep might be impacted. And this is quite common, partly due to the changes in temperature, and other reasons and when you have poor sleep guess what happens our for example our ghrelin levels that hunger hormone go up and for other reasons too we get hungrier so during pms we might get hungrier not because of our bmr changes not because of the effects of estrogen and progesterone but because we haven't slept and so then we're hungrier again so there's so many things that could potentially be going on during these hormonal shifts that can impact our hunger and our food choices. So it's about kind of trying to tackle it all. Try and tackle your hunger, what you need. Try and tackle your emotional regulation during that time. Make sure you're focusing on your sleep hygiene. Make sure you're focusing on making healthful food choices, whilst also giving yourself unconditional permission to eat should you be craving something else. And get to know your body. Track your cycle if you can. I do love um, clue natural cycles if you are in a country where abortion is limited make sure that you're using um, an app that uh, has encrypted data so that it's safe for you very important consideration and yeah just get to know your body like i said if you love this stuff make sure to look at the eiq content and also if you're a coach and you're working with people in this situation then make sure to join us at the Level Up event, which is on the 14th and 15th of April, because if you like science, then you'll absolutely love it. Well, you'll love it anyway. It's the best community in the world. Well, obviously, aside from the ETPHD community, which is a dream. Uh, okay, thank you. Bye. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. And... As always, if you did, please do feel free to like, share, subscribe and review. And if you would like to chat to me, then you can find details of my Instagram in the show notes.